Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Well, it's a a privilege as always to turn to God's Word, and tonight uh, we're welcoming another guest uh, to the pulpit, and we have uh, Reverend Francisco Victa. Francisco Victa is a pastor of Lebanon Valley Presbyterian Church, and uh, some of you might think, if you think back over the the last few years, what would be the, the hardest time to try to plant a church? Well, 2020... A few months after COVID, and yet that's what Siska and his family did, and uh, we're thankful for him and for the work that's going on there in Lebanon County. And so, uh, Skull, welcome you to the pulpit. Thank you, Chris. It is a uh, tremendous privilege and honor to be with you this evening. This church is very special to us and in, has a, uh, a big part to play in Lebanon Valley PCA. It was here that I uh, received my call from the Presbytery uh, to, uh, to the work in Lebanon. And of course, uh, Westminster has been just a tremendous uh, support to us financially and uh, in prayer and encouragement. And uh, we certainly are uh, just encouraged just being here in, in your midst and seeing all that God has done and giving us a vision of what God could do in, in Lebanon. Uh, by his good pleasure. And so we, we come with thanks to you uh, and to God for uh, granting uh, this partnership. This evening, we're looking at Genesis 15. Genesis 15. We'll start with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house, is is it Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then picking up in verse 17... When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts and minds to your word. Grant us 
your Holy Spirit. For without him, we could not see, we would remain blind. And so we pray for the power of your Spirit in each of our hearts and minds. In Christ's name, amen. The CDC noted that in 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%. That's the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. That statistic, statistic describes a weary set of teenagers. But as Pastor Chris has mentioned, if we were to explore this weariness regarding the past few years, if we were to explore it further, I presume that we would discover it's not just teenagers, but parents, school teachers, churches, young people, the elderly, weary, tired, feelings of sadness and maybe even hopelessness. The more I read Genesis 15 in the context of the Abrahamic story, I get the sense that that is where we find Abram here in Genesis 15. Weary, tired, fearful, questioning, his soul slouched. You may say, well, how can you come to that inference? I would respond, look at three things. Look at the events that have led up to Genesis 15. We know in Genesis 12, Abram left his country, dislocated from all that he had ever known. He went to Canaan, only to find it occupied by an accursed people. There he experienced a famine from which he ran from to eat, go to Egypt, and there he found himself in a world of trouble by his own doing, lying about his wife. He went back to where he started, and he faced his own failure, building an altar to the Lord, retracing his steps, only to have his impetuous nephew, Lot, leave him, then having to rescue his nephew, Lot, by going to war from him. And most recently, in chapter 14, Abram turns down a lucrative offer from the king of Sodom, an offer of wealth and protection. It would not be unreasonable to say Abram did not come out of these circumstances unscathed. As for us, as life throws at us stuff that would cause us to lose our equilibrium, our balance in life, Abram had been through some seriously tough times. Not only that, but look at the initial encouragement that God gives Abram in the first verse. Fear not, Abram. We never see God or one of his messengers giving a word to fear not if somebody wasn't afraid. But not only the events and the encouragement, but look at the dialogue, the exchange between Abram and God here, the verbal exchange. It is marked by questioning, particularly two questions. First, in verse 2, will I continue childless? And then verse 8, how shall I know that I shall inherit the land? So we look at the events, we look at the encouragement that God gives Abram, we look at the dialogue, and we see a weary man. Luther said Genesis 15 is one of the most stunning and clearest pictures of the gospel. 
For it is here that God comes to a man as he struggles with who he thinks he should be and who he actually is. A man who still doesn't have a child and is still a wanderer with no land. And in the midst of that, God does three things. He gives a word of encouragement. He welcomes the questioning from Abram. And then he works his covenant. I want to focus on particularly those last two statements. First, of course, to touch it briefly, God gives this word of encouragement, fear not, because the ultimate problem of Genesis 15 is one of assurance. How can Abram be sure that the Lord will provide him an heir? The question is a practical one that engages all the other blessings that God has promised him. Without an heir, there can be no nation. Without a nation, there can be no inhabitants for the land. Will the covenant begin and end with Abram's natural lifespan in the midst of those concerns? God says, fear not, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Or in that old King James language, I am your exceedingly great reward. God gives a word of encouragement to this weary man, this fearful man. And then secondly, he welcomes the questioning. Abram first questions God in verse 2. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? Will I continue childless? And then his second question, Abram questions himself in verse 8. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall... possess it. The first question, of course, is justified. How can I be a great nation if I don't have a child of my own? And what is so beautiful in this exchange is that God does not rebuke Abram in his questioning. We would presume that God would be right to say, how dare you question me? What do you mean you don't have a son? I told you way back in Ur, I will make you a great nation. Okay, deal's off. But God engages with Abram in his questioning. A local professor of a Bible school recently told me that in all his years, many years of working with college students, he has never seen young people so skeptical, skeptical of our nation, skeptical of our politics, skeptical of the church, skeptical of leadership, skeptical of all authority. And typically we would see such skepticism as a weakness, of course, not a strength. But perhaps such skepticism could turn us towards God and not away from Him. This passage shows us that in seasons of skepticism, they don't have to lead to apostasy or a loss of our faith, but seasons like this can lead to new life and a deeper faith. God sticks with Abram through the questions that when he is walking in the dark, God comes alongside of him. Reminds us of Mark 9, when a father brings his boy to Jesus and asks him to heal him. And Jesus says, I can heal him. All things are possible to him who believes. And the father cries out, I believe. Oh Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus healed him. The father was admitting there's a long distance between who I should be and who I actually am. I want to believe, but I have questions. Help me. It may remind us of John the Baptist when he sends a messenger from prison and he says to Jesus, are you the one or shall we wait for another? 
Jesus doesn't say, what kind of question is that? You prepared the way. You know who I am. No, he sends a messenger back to John to encourage him. God's dealing with Abram shows us his walking with him, his encouraging him, his welcoming those questions. And yes, Abram will ultimately be put in his place, but not by rebuke or a warning, but God engages with him. And this narrative shows us that those questions that often in our lives, in our walk of faith, can lead to stronger faith, not weaker faith. Francis Bacon was one of the first modern scientists, and he wrote, if you begin with certainties, you will end in doubts. If you begin with doubts, you will end with certainties. What was he saying? But you have to seek to understand, and you have to be transparent with your doubts and often wrestling. And we see it here, Abram doing that in his weariness, bringing his doubts before God, but it results in a stronger faith than if he would have not had asked those questions in the first place. There's a kind of doubt that doesn't want answers, but there's a kind of doubt that wants answers. Maybe you have questions in the face of tragedy or have questions because things are not working out as you have planned, but God is strong enough to handle our questions and loving enough to engage with us. Lord, I believe, help me. We see progress, tremendous progress. Of course, Abram begins with doubt, but he, he ends with the greater certainty. Abraham believed the Lord in the famous verse 6, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here's a man in doubt and weariness and fear, exceedingly troubled in heart. Here's a man who knows there's a long distance between who he should be and who he actually is. But this man obtains righteousness. How? God spoke, and Abram believed what he said. That covenant that would be made here was founded on God's free, initiated acts of grace toward Abram, not on anything that Abram had done in the past to merit these promises. Not only does God give a word of encouragement and welcomes these questions, but particularly relevant for us in this season of Lent, God begins to work his covenant. He further identifies himself to Abram in verse 7. I am the God who led you out of Ur. I will give you a son, an offspring. The first identifier had to do with the past and the the second, the future. And this is where we see Abram's second question. But he said in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Remember the first question, question God. The second question is a question to God, but about himself. How do I know I will come through? There's actually incredible self-reflection and self-awareness by Abram here. I know myself, and I know I don't have what it takes. How do I know I will possess the land. How do I know I will come through? And in this question, Abram comes face to face with his limitation. It's a legitimate question, especially in light of his previous failings, of what he did in Egypt, of having less integrity than a pagan king. 
And it's an appropriate question in this season of Lent where we come to face to face with our ultimate limitation, the sin that has dislocated and distorted our souls. And coming to the realization there is nothing we can do in our own power to remedy it. That's the ultimate human limitation. Lent reminds us of the truth of our own fallibility, that my ability to do what God has called me to do is severely compromised. I'm saddled with all sorts of conditions that will hamper me in the endeavors that God has set before me. How do I know that I will possess this land? Oh, the limitations of the human being. Oh, the consequences of Adam's disobedience that has come on his descendants, that has given us a host of spiritual limitations. What does the Scripture say regarding the limitations of man? Man is unable to understand God, Psalm 50. The man is unable to see spiritual things, John 3. He doesn't even know his own heart, Jeremiah 17. He can't free himself from the curse of the law, Galatians 3. He can't receive the Holy Spirit, John 14, 17. He can't hear, understand, or receive the words of God, John 8. He cannot birth himself into God's family. He can't produce repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He can't please God. Do you see what Abram's saying? How do I know that I'll possess it? I'm the same man that I've always been. The same man subject to the same handicaps I've always had. How can I know I'll possess the land? As he lay dying on January 1st, 1937, J. Grisham Machen, the great theologian and minister, we're told, dictated a telegram to his colleague, John Murray, and he said this, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. By this, Machen acknowledged that man has the obligation to be righteous, but not the ability. Abram had the obligation to possess the land, but he was verbalizing his skepticism about his ability to do it. Christ, however, is righteous, for the Scripture tells us in him there is no sin. And when Machen said he was so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, he was saying Christ is the substitute without blemish, that Christ's life alone is characterized by perfect obedience to the Father's will. He alone can possess the land. We cannot plead that we are righteous, for in ourselves we are not, but we can plead the righteousness of the one Jesus Christ who possessed the land and the blessings for us. How do I know? I'll make it. It's not only Machen or Abram, but you have you noticed? Have you noticed that most saints at the end of their lives have an abiding sense of their dependency and smallness? Not of a great enlightenment, not of rising to hero status, but a deeper realization of their limitations before a holy God? Abram says, how can I know that I'll possess the land? And in answer to this question, God makes a covenant. A covenant that Hebrews 6, 17 refers to back to Genesis 15 when it says God gave two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, his promise and his oath. And those two things, the writer of Hebrews says, gives the believer strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It is the sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. 
The covenant is an anchor. What God did here for Abram was an anchor for his soul. What Christ did in his perfect obedience and life and sacrifice on the cross becomes an anchor for the soul of the believer. An anchor. I remember, my wife is here this evening, and I remember when we were dating, uh, we went to visit her parents on the Belgrade Lakes in the state of Maine. Beautiful, big lake. I think bigger than most lakes around here. And uh, her dad was very generous and said, you go ahead and take, the, take her out on the boat. in a nice, nice sized boat with a big motor. And it was one of those lakes, you know, when you, when you get out away from shore, it's not very long before you, re- you start to ask, where am I? I thought I came from there. No, that, that's not the cabin. Long story short, we went out there on that beautiful sunny day and I put down the anchor, but I didn't put it all the way down. And so thinking we were steady and firm, what was happening as we were out there on that boat is we were drifting (laughs) because that anchor didn't go all the way down to the bottom. It's It's an embarrassing story, and it's amazing that her father ever let me marry her because he had to come out and rescue us that day. God's anchor, this anchor goes all the way to the bottom. The anchor that God did here, the covenant that made here, what made here, he said to Abram, bring a three-year-old heifer, a she-goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And what happened? Those animals were cut in half. The birds are slaughtered but not split in two. God makes a covenant. Abram knows exactly what was going on here in ancient history. They were accustomed to this. A covenant was being made. And this covenant may remind us of what God did for Adam and Eve on the day sin entered the world, as decay and despair began to sink in, as they were hiding from God. God comes as a tailor, doesn't he? He kneels in the dirt and he makes clothes out of animal skins for them. He covers them. Here God comes in fire and smoke and sparks. It's the presence of God. But that's not only what was so astonishing. It was what happened that day. For the fire passed between the pieces as Abraham slept. And what's so stunning, what's so shocking, what is so much the gospel here is that God walks through the pieces. Abram doesn't walk through them as it would be in a, in a custom covenant ritual, a king and a servant going through. But God said, I'll walk through. You see what's happening when Abram is asking, oh God, how do I know that I'll come through? How do I know I won't mess up your plan? How do I know I'll make it? God, how do I know that I won't lose everything that you promised me? How do I know I won't lose my salvation? How do I know I have what it takes to possess the promised land? God says, I'm going to walk through with the both of us. And I will take the curse if I don't come through for you. And I will take the curse if you don't come through for me. Either way, I'm walking through the pieces alone. And I will bless you even if I have to die for you. And what we see is a unilateral covenant that will have tremendous ramifications 
not only for Abram, but for the people of God, of Israel, and those to come, because it's grounded in the merciful promises of God, where God is obligating himself to keep it. And as we close this evening, the reason this passage is so meaningful, particularly in this season of Lent, is because it reminds us that the only anchor that can save a soul is the covenant of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For Paul said in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us all through Jesus Christ. And why this passage is so meaningful in this particular season is because it's not only the only anchor that can save a soul. It is the only anchor that can hold his children in sadness and grief and pain and the uncertainty of our world and the storms that are raging in our land. It's the only anchor that can hold hurting, broken, weary people is the covenant of our Savior. Message that he willed to do what was right and he did what was right for his people's sake. That is what will hold us. That is what keeps us through sadness, even persistent sadness even feelings of despondency. Oh, yes, through weariness, it's the rest, it's the comfort, it's the strength. How do we know we'll make it, church? Because the Scripture says, even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, for He alone is the one bearing the burden of the covenant. He alone will bear it upon His own shoulders as He carries the cross. Calvary. Oh, turn your eyes to Christ in your weariness and sadness and uncertainty and questioning. He will hold you through it all. Let's pray. Father, today we acknowledge our weariness, our sin, the ultimate limitation of our very being that which would dislocate us and distort us, cause us to run to you, cause us by your Spirit to know you and trust you. Each one here, we plead, Lord, for your salvation to come to households. And we ask, Lord, you would hold your people through trials and tribulations through sufferings, through griefs and laments, may we look to Christ, the one who suffered for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation, through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.